Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. As a missing persons advocate, I have a soft spot for those long, cold missing persons cases the ones you don't hear about anymore, the cases that don't make the news or get headlines, that most likely don't have a detective looking them over. Come with me to the Pacific Northwest, where we explore the 1974 disappearance of a teenage girl, Lori Lynn Partridge. Lori Lynn, known as Lori, was born in 1957 to Mary and Kenneth Partridge in Santa Monica, California. She was the oldest of six children, five girls, and one boy. A few years after Lori's birth, the young family settled in Fountain Valley, California. As a teenager, Lori attended Los Amigos High School, where she had an active social circle and many friends. Right before her senior year, Kenneth announced that his job was moving the family from Southern California to Spokane, Washington. Lori was crushed. She was upset to be moving states away from her friends, her longtime boyfriend of three years, and her whole life. In the summer of 1974, the family moved to Washington and Lori was enrolled at Joel E. Ferris High School. At first, she was depressed. Her family was worried and paid for her boyfriend to fly up to visit her at the beginning of the school year in an effort to cheer her up. Her boyfriend encouraged her to come back to California with him. Her parents told Lori in October that if she really wanted to go back to Fountain Valley to finish her senior year, she could live with a friend there. But Lori declined the offer and opted to stay in Washington. Always bubbly and social, Lori chose to make the best of the situation. She joined the school newspaper, the drill team, and she got an after-school job at Lincoln Heights Movie Theater. Soon, she cut ties with her old boyfriend and began seeing someone new from the Spokane area. Lori's parents loved her new boyfriend, and the relationship soon turned serious. According to her sisters, Lori took her faith seriously, and her family was glad she found someone who shared her faith, as her California boyfriend had not. Lori also loved writing, singing, and playing her guitar. She had even started to teach her younger siblings to play. December 4th, 1974. The day started out normal. Lori and her siblings went to school and her parents went to work. At about noon, Lori was not feeling well and complained of menstrual cramps while at school. At lunchtime, she called her parents and asked for a ride home but both were in meetings or otherwise busy at work. They encouraged Lori to take it easy for a few hours and then take the school bus home. At about 12.30 p.m., Lori saw her sister Cindy in the school library and told her that she was going to walk home, hoping that the exercise would ease her cramps. Lori left campus and planned on walking home, a journey of a little over two miles. She had to walk east on East 37th to South Havana Street, and then head to walk south until she hit South Glenrose Road, and from there turn left onto her residential street. 
If you look at aerial photos and Google Street View, you can see the route that Lori had to take that day. Along South 37th Street is a well-established neighborhood, and this continues all the way to South Havana. Once Lori started moving south on South Havana Avenue, the houses became more spread out. There were large gaps between lots, and some homes even had horse pastures or cultivated fields around them. Although Lori would have stayed on the road for the majority of her walk home, not all parts of her walk were through densely populated residential areas. Lori left campus and started her walk home. At the time, the school had a policy that students could leave partway through the day if they were ahead in credits. According to her family, Lori's afternoon classes were not graduation requirement classes, so Lori was allowed to leave campus and walk home. Soon after Lori called her and asked for a ride, Mary Partridge was overcome with a dark feeling. In the mid-afternoon, she told her boss that she felt something awful had happened and she left work early. She picked up her other children from school rather than have them take the bus, and they all headed home. Once there, it was evident that Lori had not returned to the house. By the time Kenneth got home from work, she still was nowhere to be found. A trip to the Lincoln Heights Theater revealed that Lori had never arrived there and missed her evening shift. At this time, she was reported missing to the police. Lori's father retraced her steps by walking his daughter's route from school. He talked to friends, neighbors, and locals, and several people had seen Lori walking home that day. Through these impromptu interviews, Kenneth was able to determine that people saw Lori walking from the high school to about 44th or 47th and South Havana Street, but after that, the sightings stopped. Now, there are some published reports that say she was last seen around 34th Street and Havana. Police arrived that night and said they would not start searching that evening because, like many cases in the 1970s, they decided that Lori, unhappy with her move to Washington, had run away from home. And this infuriates me, but it's just how things were handled back then. Thankfully, today, most departments know better than to let a missing child case sit on the back burner. The Partridge family was adamant that this was not the case. They said Lori was fitting in well with her new life. She liked her job. She never missed a shift. She was very close to her siblings and had very little money on her on December 4th because she had spent her entire paycheck on Christmas presents. Also, her new boyfriend had asked her to marry him. The couple had planned to look at engagement rings the next day on December 5th. Lori also had a trip planned to California and a plane ticket dated December 26th. What's more, Lori was looking forward to going to a Beach Boys concert on Monday, December 9th at the Spokane Coliseum. Lori had received two tickets to the concert as a gift from her father. They were meant to be a Christmas gift, but he had to give them to her early because the concert was a few weeks before Christmas. Lori was reportedly very excited to go to this concert and was carrying the concert tickets with her in her purse on the day that she went missing. Now, reports differ on who Lori was going to go to the concert with. Some say she planned on taking her boyfriend, John, to the concert, while other reports say that while the boyfriend was planning on going to the concert, he had his own ticket and Lori was taking her father with her to the event. Whatever the truth is, Lori's family was adamant that she would not miss the concert and asked the police to check every ticket as it came in the door because the family knew the ticket numbers. 
Unfortunately, police decided this would take too much time to check each ticket as it came in, but they assured the family that they would post a police officer at the concert to search for Lori. According to police, Lori did not appear at the concert, but later checks of the ticket stubs showed that every single general admission ticket was used that night, meaning the tickets that Lori had on her when she disappeared were used. The Partridge family was understandably upset that police neglected to pursue such an important lead. Many online sources say the contents of Lori's purse were found in a wooded area on December 6th, two days after she was last seen. But listeners, that's not true. Lori's purse or its contents have never been recovered, with the exception of the concert tickets. By December 5th or 6th, Spokane police began to wonder if Lori had met with foul play or been abducted, and they started investigating the crime as such, although they had not yet given up on the runaway theory and claimed that early in the investigation, one boy in the neighborhood even told police that Lori had mentioned running away. Lori's boyfriend, who was 20 years old and lived on a farm with his parents a few miles from town, he was questioned and re-questioned repeatedly. He was never named a suspect in her disappearance. Both of Lori's ex-boyfriends were questioned as well, including her boyfriend who lived in Southern California. But this line of inquiry went nowhere. Once Lori's case hit the airwaves, two important tips came in to the police. One tip came from a teenage girl who reported that at about 4.15 on December 4th, she saw a man in his 40s or 50s talking with a teenage girl in a field near where Lori was last seen. The man was holding a rifle. He was standing outside of a parked white truck with a van back end and one darker colored door. The teenage witness, who was on horseback, looked back a few minutes later and could no longer see the teenage girl. When the witness got home, she told her mom about the strange incident. Later, when the witness's mom was watching TV, she saw a report about Lori's disappearance and she phoned the police. This tip is in the original case file, but it was not released to the public until 2011. Other witnesses reported seeing a green Pinto station wagon driving around that afternoon. One report even says that this car, the green Pinto, was following Lori. A tip from a few days later mentioned that someone saw an unconscious teenage girl in the back seat of a green Pinto in the parking lot of a place called Pay and Save. Sadly, Nothing came from either of these leads, but the Green Pinto was reported several times and is often cited in stories about this case. According to Lori's sister, these were the two leads reported within hours of Lori's case being publicized. After Lori's disappearance, her family struggled significantly. Both parents felt guilty that they had not been able to give Lori a ride that day. Mary suffered from depression, and Kenneth spent thousands of dollars on private eyes and psychics, hoping to find Lori, but nothing new was ever uncovered. Eventually, her parents divorced. However, they did remarry more than 10 years later. For the first few months, Lori's case was featured often in Spokane-area newspapers, but eventually, coverage slowed to a trickle. After all, how much can you really write about a girl who was seemingly swallowed by the streets of Spokane with so few leads or suspects? And listeners, we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. A few years after Lori went missing, a well-known criminal became a person of interest in the case. Ted Bundy, the notorious serial killer, 
may have been in the area on or around the days of Lori's abduction. Bundy was known to drive out of his way in order to find victims that he thought would not be tied to him. For example, Lynette Culver of Pocatello, Idaho, is believed to be a Bundy victim, and Bundy admitted that he went to Pocatello in order to find a victim from out of state. He also admitted he liked going to places like Pocatello because he could get there and back on one tank of gas. However, Spokane is a 10-hour drive from Salt Lake City, where Bundy was living at the time. Several years later, police discovered that Bundy's credit card was used in Salt Lake City on either December 3rd or 4th, and on December 6th, so it's unlikely he could get to Spokane during the time frame that Lori was abducted. Other reports claim that Bundy was in Seattle on the 6th of December, and if this is true, there is possibility he could have traveled through Spokane, but it isn't known for sure. It should be mentioned that Ted Bundy was known to be in Spokane on at least two occasions in the 1970s, and after he was arrested, some women reported seeing him lurking around Gonzaga University parties in the early 1970s, although this has never been confirmed to actually be Bundy. When questioned, Bundy denied involvement in Lori's particular case. Although police and the family now say they are 99% sure Ted Bundy was not involved in this case, for several years he was considered the prime suspect, as Bundy was known to abduct girls who are walking home from school, and it remains an important part of this story. According to a 1983 interview with the Spokane Chronicle, Mary Partridge revealed that once Bundy was eliminated, a Spokane man with a history of sex crimes was also investigated for Lori's disappearance. Two months after Lori was last seen, a 10-year-old was abducted in Spokane. The girl was abducted while at the park, molested in the car, strangled until unconscious, then dumped by her attacker, who presumably thought she was dead. However, she woke up and was able to describe the incident and her attacker. About a week later, John Richard Hurley was arrested and charged with the crime. Hurley had a criminal record for burglary going back to the late 1960s. There is virtually no information about John R. Hurley except that he pleaded guilty to the crime, and, since he was on probation at the time, he was sentenced to life in prison. According to the 10-year-old victim, Hurley abducted her in a green-and-white van. Hurley did not actually own this van, that he used during his crimes, so he did not always have access to this vehicle. Newer reports on the Lori Partridge case fail to mention Hurley at all, so it's possible he was ruled out as a suspect in the Partridge case, and Lori's niece, who maintains a website about Lori's disappearance, never mentions Hurley at all. Coincidentally, Lori's route home that day also took her by the workplace of another known serial killer, Stanley Burnson. Bernson was a Spokane native and sex offender who was a produce delivery man from mid-1973 to mid-1975. According to Lori's family, Lori was only about four blocks away from a fruit stand that Bernson had delivered to in the past. Because of this connection, many online sleuths have speculated that Bernson could have abducted Lori on December 4, 1974 as he had been convicted of kidnapping other teenage girls several times by this point in his life. In 1967, Bernson abducted a 13-year-old outside of Spokane and drove her around for a few hours before letting her go. 
1976, he was accused of molesting a child, but was never convicted of the crime. In 1980, Bernson tried to stab an Oregon woman and was sentenced to 10 years in prison for the assault. While in prison, he was charged with the abduction and murder of Diane Remington in Richland, Washington. Diane was a student at the local community college. While in prison, Bernson admitted that he was involved in the murders of around 30 girls and women, and even claimed he knew and worked with Bundy himself. Law enforcement doubts these claims, but has verified that Bernson is a suspect in several murders and disappearances in the Pacific Northwest. He is suspected of killing 15-year-old Sharon Weber in Hermston, Oregon, a crime that he confessed to. He is also a suspect in the rape and murder of nine-year-old Candy Rogers in 1959 and the 1978 strangulation death of Chris Ann Baxter. Both cases took place in Spokane, although Candy's case has since been solved. Spokane police did look into the lead and talk to Bernson several times while in prison, but Bernson has always denied involvement in Lori's case, even when he is willing to admit to other crimes. Nothing hard ties him to Lori's disappearance, but Lori's family sees him as the best suspect. Other locals have speculated that Lori's case may be related to the abduction, molestation, and murder of 10-year-old David Willoughby of Spokane in 1970. David was walking in an empty field with his friends to find a parachute that had landed there. David's friends decided to go back to their homes, but David continued on. When David never returned home, he was reported missing. Two witnesses reported seeing a boy matching David's description with a white man in his 40s who was driving a 1957 Green Nash station wagon or a 1957 Chevy Vega. In one report, the man was struggling with a child in the back seat, but the witness assumed the man was the child's father and that the two were simply arguing. The other witness saw the pair at a convenience store where the man was buying candy for David. Law enforcement believes these witnesses to be credible and believes that the boy seen with this man was David. David's body was found several months later north of Spokane. The reason some think Lori's case may be related to this one is because of the sightings of the Green Pinto station wagon seen in the area where Lori was last seen. Although a 1957 Green Nash and a Green Pinto station wagon do not exactly look the same, they do look similar. Moreover, the prime suspect in David's case, who has never been named publicly, has a record of child molestation. Is it possible that the same man who abducted and abused David also abducted and abused Lori? Well, there's no hard evidence of this theory. It's a strange connection and another tragic story. One report says this man died shortly after David's abduction, but this tidbit is not mentioned in any other reports. The final and most dubious connection that is sometimes mentioned in this case is that Lori's disappearance was related to the disappearance of Marla Jean Thomas exactly one week later. Marla disappeared from Anna Cortez, Washington. The cases have no other connection besides their dates. Anna Cortez is hundreds of miles from Spokane and the disappearance of Marla seems to be a domestic violence situation. While this connection is very slim, it is worth mentioning. Sadly, the case of Lori Partridge and the cases of so many other people from Spokane who suffered similar fates such as David Willoughby remain unsolved and cold. Lori is described as a white female, 17 years old in 1974. 
She stood five feet tall and weighed 110 pounds. Her hair has been described as wavy or curly, and it's also been described as blonde or strawberry blonde. She has blue eyes and has a large brown mole on her right cheek. She was last seen wearing a long, hooded, navy blue coat similar to a monk's robe, a tan v-neck sweater, burgundy and tan plaid pants, and faded blue denim Oxford shoes with crepe soles. She was carrying a brown leather purse with a blue flower design and a braided shoulder strap with Beach Boys tickets inside. Lori has been ruled out as being 23 separate Jane Doe's, including many of the widely excluded Virginia Jane Doe, Fly Creek Jane Doe, San Bernardino County Jane Doe, Joint Base Lewis-McChord Jane Doe, Pierce County Jane Doe, Union County, Oregon Jane Doe, and one living Jane Doe who was found in Spokane in 2014. Snohomish Jane Doe, who's now identified, and Elkutna Annie. She has never been excluded as being the Spokane Jane Doe known as Millie. If you have information on the disappearance of Lori Partridge, please contact Spokane County Sheriff's Office at 509-477-4760. Her family is still desperately hoping for answers. What happened to Lori Partridge? Her family runs a webpage and a Facebook page about her case. I did reach out to them for more information, but as of this writing, I have not heard back. To mark the holiday season in December, I am releasing extra bonus content because I appreciate you, the listener. Watch for new episodes each week this month. As always, I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.